0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. We have sung, Heavenly Father, that you speak, that you have spoken in the past through your words by the prophets. And we thank you that by your spirit you speak to us today still. And so we would pray that you would very much speak into our situations and into our very hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Please sit down. Let me encourage you to open your Bibles again to Ezra chapter five and six, page 477. I wanna take you on a day trip, if you will, with me. Well, it's barely a day trip, it's a very short trip, but will you come with me in your mind's eye uh, this evening? Um, it's not a trip I expect that you'd like to come with me on, but it's a trip that I think is necessary. I want you to come to me tonight, in your mind, on a trip to the crematorium. When we arrive, we look at the names posted outside the chapel, at the names of all the people who will be cremated that day. Seven are listed, that's usually the number, there or thereabouts when I go. The crematorium opens five days a week, so it doesn't take much to work out that 35 people will be cremated this week. And this is just one of three crematoriums in Sheffield. That's 100 people cremated in Sheffield in a week. This year, 5,000 people will be cremated in Sheffield. And I haven't even begun to mention those who will be buried. And desperately, most of them know nothing of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, in that one short trip to the crematorium, we see why it is so crucial that the church in this land must be what it should be. In Sheffield and South Yorkshire and across Britain and all around the world, we need the church to be faithfully proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, actively seeking to find the lost, attractively living the Christian life, to show dear people who are dying every week that there is a hope beyond the grave. A hundred people die in Sheffield alone every week, most of them without Christ. Every single week, people are plunging into a lost eternity. And that is why the book of Ezra is so important to us, because it is all about building the church, reforming the church to be what it should be. It, of course, was written hundreds of years before Jesus Christ, and as we've seen in these past weeks, Ezra is about rebuilding the temple. Uh, We don't have a physical temple today. The physical temple, as I've tried to explain week after week, is now the church, not a building but you and me, the people of God. And God is building and rebuilding and needs to rebuild and reform his church, his people, to be all that we should be, not to be a as it were, a building in tatters, in ruins. Because we are the people who are to take the life-giving message of the Lord Jesus Christ to men and women who are dying without him. Last week in chapter four, the temple rebuilding project had come to a grinding halt because of opposition. Do you remember back two weeks ago in chapter three, the people of God had rebuilt the altar and then the foundations of the temple, but then chapter four, verse one, Enemies set out to stop the work and they succeeded. So in chapter four, verse five, and chapter four, verse 22, the work of rebuilding the temple stopped right from the reign of King Cyrus down to the second year of the reign of King Darius. For around eight years, not one brick was added to the foundations that had so far been laid. Until chapter five, verse one, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet ascended to Vittu, Prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. And then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Jozadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. And if you're taking notes tonight, then here's your first heading the Word of God, building God's church. See, Haggai and Zechariah here in verse 1, as you can see from verse 1, were prophets. They each happened to have a book of the Bible containing their own prophetic words a bit later on in our Bible. These authentic, recognised Old Testament prophets arrived in Jerusalem and proclaimed the word of God and that was what restarted the building work on the temple. Remember, nothing had happened for eight years. And what was true then is true today. For the church to be built and reformed, for the word of God, uh, for, the, for, the, for us to be the people we ought to be, the word of God must be proclaimed. The word is to be taught. God's people hear God's voice. And then we get on with God's work. Uh, please don't just think this is about being inspired by these words we can be inspired by all sorts of words to to do all sorts of things Uh, god's word is inspiring but it's far more than that god's word is powerful when god speaks things things happen his word has authority we see it right right at the beginning of the bible in the very first chapter god said let there be light And there was light. It wasn't as if in some way his word inspired somebody to create light. No, he said, and it happened. God's word is dynamic. And so when God's word is proclaimed today, expect things to happen. Last week we saw how the enemies of God's people discouraged them and frightened them and, and ganged up against them. But here at the beginning of chapter five, the word of God proclaimed by the prophets of God overcame any opposition to God so just as we saw last week as we go about the work of the gospel there will be opposition we will encounter enemies of the gospel and at times opposition will appear to frustrate gospel ministry but when that happens we must preach God's word that is the thing that is going to kick-start the church all over this land and all around the world to become what we should be You see, just as uh, in chapter four the, the work stopped and the temple wasn't complete, so when we look in this land, we see a church nationally in decline, morally, no different from the world. So much of the world's morals are in the church. And why does it matter? Because every week people are dying without Christ. Where are they going to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ if the church is not doing its work, if we're not what we should be? We must proclaim the word of God to get going again, the church to become what we should be in order that we can go out and start proclaiming the word to other people that they might be saved. We must flood the pulpits of this land with men who are able to teach the Bible in clear, relevant and in engaging way. That's why one of the three key strands of our vision here at Christ Church Forward is to train leaders, to train people for a lifetime of faithfully handling the word of God because when God's word is taught, things happen. God's word overcomes opposition and God's church is built by God's word proclaimed. That incidentally is why the Bible is outlawed in countries where Christianity is banned. Because those who oppose Jesus Christ know that when his word gets into the hands and hearts of people, they are changed and the church is built. Sometimes I think the opposition understand this more than we do. So they ban the the word of God in their countries because they know how powerful it is. We have it sitting on our desk and never even bother opening it. This is why Christians risk their lives to take the Bible into countries that are closed to the gospel because when the word of God comes to people, God speaks to people and the church grows. So verse two, work on the temple began again. But no sooner had it started than opposition came again. So if the first heading is the word of God building God's church, the second is opposition against God Hindering God's building work. Look at verse three. At that time, Tatanai, governor of Trans Euphrates, which is not a coach company, even though it sounds like it, at that time Tatanai, governor of Trans Euphrates, and Shethar Bozani and their associate uh, associates went to them and asked, Who authorized you to rebuild the, this temple and restore the structures? They also asked, What are the names of the men constructing this building? Now, uh, this is, again, opposition, just as we saw in chapter four, but it's different opposition. This is kind of a vicious red tape type of opposition. Tatanai and Shethar Bozani, along with other officials from trans want an authorisation code. They want to see the planning permission, that sort of thing. As opposition goes, this seems a lot less menacing than the fear-inducing, threatening and bullying that we saw in chapter four. But be sure, what happens here in chapter five is intimidating. Verse four, did you notice it? The officials want names. And you and I know that when somebody wants your name, that is very threatening. It's when uh, you encounter an awkward customer at work, or for those of you in the health service, a difficult patient. They're complaining about something or other. The conversation gets a little bit frosty. And then they ask for your name and the name of your line manager. And at that point, you feel threatened. I mean you do feel threatened because you know they haven't asked for your name because they're going to send you a personalised Christmas card from moonpig.com The officials here wanted names so they could press charges once they'd established that the building work was unauthorised They were sure they shouldn't be doing this I just want to take your name so that when I can actually prove that you shouldn't be doing it I'm going to get you This kind of opposition may not seem life threatening, but be under no illusions. Officialdom is nonetheless an attempt to hamper and hinder the building work of God. And it is kind of menacing. A university Christian union encountered, encountered this sort of thing in recent years up and down the country. Uh, I don't know it's happening here in Sheffield, but uh, you, I know of other places. The student union make the Christian union go through all the official channels before they can hold meetings, blocking them from having certain speakers on site, not allowing them to have certain rooms. It's that kind of officialdom, just getting in the way of gospel ministry. I see it at times in the Church of England where order and process and protocol seem to come above and before imaginative ideas to proclaim the gospel. Now look, I'm not saying that order is unimportant. But institutional rule keeping can be so tight and overbearing that it stifles the work of God that it has been inspired by the word of God. People have ideas, they want to do things. If you go through all, these, all this rigmarole and by the time you've gone through the rigmarole, it, the idea's gone, something's changed. A friend of mine from a, a different church, he's told me a, a, how a number of times gospel initiative has been quashed by the institution again and again. That's the sort of thing that's going on here in verses three and four. So firstly, we see the word of God building God's church with the building of God's church having stopped. The word of God comes, it starts again. And then as soon as that happens, secondly, opposition against God, hindering God's building work. But thirdly, and this is the really big point of the whole chapter, thirdly, the sovereignty of God ruling over all See, despite the meddling of the governor of trans-Euphrates and his associates, look at verse five. But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews and they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius and his written reply be received. There's a similar phrase at the end of verse one. I wonder if you, you spotted it talks about these prophets, one of them being a descendant of Edo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Do you see that verse five? The eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews. Verse one, their God who was over them. God over his people, ruling over them, his watchful eye on them, protecting them. And so second half of verse five, because God was watching over his people, the work was not stopped while a report was sent to King Darius and then Darius's reply was received. So what we see in the rest of chapter five and right through chapter six is God so overruling to enable the work to continue. But what we see in the rest of this chapter and the next is the sovereignty of God overruling the opposition in a most remarkable way. In these chapters, God so rules that he not only overcomes the opposition, but we'll see that he uses the scurrilous attempts to stop the building work for the advancement of his kingdom. He takes the evil work of men and women and then turns it around for his good. The rest of chapter five is, verse six, a copy of the letter that the officials of trans-Euphrates sent to King Darius. Darius. And the letter tells us so much. End of verse eight, the building of the temple was being carried out with diligence and was making rapid progress. You see, the word of God has come. It's inspired them to get on things. They're they're getting on really well with it. For so many years, it had just come to a standstill. Now they're getting on. Then verses nine and 10 also tells us what we already know, that the officials of trans-Euphrates demanded proof of planning permission for the work and took notes of the names of those leading the building work but from verse 11 we get a few new insights into the into the situation here are just two verse 11 the people of god define themselves as servants of god do you see that there chapter 5 verse 11 we are the servants of god i think that's really important how we define ourselves how we think about ourselves will affect our actions If I define myself as a doctor, well, that would be strange because I'm not, but if I define myself as a doctor or a dentist or an accountant or a mother or a student or whatever, that will, in part, determine where I put my energy and how I use my time, how I define myself. I'm a doctor. Well, then I'm going to do most of my, most of my energy is going to be put into me being what I've just defined myself as. But people who define themselves as God's servants will put most of their energy into serving God. I'm not saying you can't serve God as a, as a doctor. I'm just saying it changes the way you think. I'm a servant of God. Now these people called themselves servants of God and as a result they made huge progress in the work of God. Now, the second thing that's uh, interesting in, these, in this letter, verse 12, is uh, the people of God confess their sinfulness to God. Do you see that in Verse 12. Because our fathers angered the God of heaven, he handed them over to Nebuchadnezzar, the Chaldean king of Babylon, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. Now, these people knew that they were rightly under the wrath of God. They knew that their forefathers had angered God. They knew they were in a long line, the last in a long line of generations of people who disobeyed God they knew that's why the church was in a state of disrepair it's because of the disobedience of his people as always the case and so they acknowledged that and repented of it It didn't take much to turn a situation around god's people to acknowledge their sinfulness and to return to god in repentance that's all it takes And then in verses 13 to 16, they explain that Cyrus, the king of Persia, had given them permission to build the temple. And so verse 17, uh, chapter five, verse 17, over the page, the officials of trans-Euphrates asked King Darius to search his records in order to check out these claims. And that's what Darius did. Chapter six, verse one, Darius issued an order and they searched in the archives stored in the treasury at Babylon. Verse two, he found a scroll. And verses 3 to 5, that scroll confirmed that King Cyrus had indeed authorized the building of the temple. But that's not all he discovered in that ancient document. In that scroll, King Cyrus decreed, halfway through verse 4, that the costs of the rebuilding of the temple were to be met by the royal treasury. Now, that was a game changer. Because Darius, King Darius, wrote back to the officials of Trans Euphrates, telling them, verse 7, do not interfere with the work of this temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild this house of God on its site. And then he added this this is brilliant, verse 8 Moreover, I hereby decree what you are to do for the elders of the Jews in the construction of this house of God. The expenses of these men are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury from the revenues of trans-Euphrates so that the work will not stop. It is brilliant. Here is where we see the sovereignty of God, of God being over and watching over his people. You see, here were the officials of trans-Euphrates meddling, trying to stop the work of God. But the Lord wonderfully overruled so that not only was the work on the temple permitted to continue, but it was paid for by the royal treasury of an unbelieving king. And don't miss the delicious detail in verse 8. The very local authority, trans-Euphrates, who tried to stop the work, ended up funding the work. I love it. So the people of God were given state money to rebuild the temple and then if you look down to verse 11 and 12, they were given state protection as they rebuilt the temple. The eye of their God was indeed watching over his people. A previous vicar of mine used to say the devil always overstretches himself. We see that here, don't we? Here is um, opposition trying to stop the work and it actually all turns around on its head god takes it and it doesn't stop the work at all actually he actually uses it to to further the work you want examples of this i'll give you the very best one i can give you the cross of the lord jesus christ wicked people tried to kill and destroy jesus by having him nailed to a cross but the cross was the very means by which god would save the world People do their worst against God and God said, "Hmm, I'll use that for the salvation of men and women. The cross is the supreme example of how God sovereignly overrules the wicked schemes of men. But we can see him doing the same again and again throughout history. Let me give you one little example of our own recent history here in Sheffield of him doing exactly that. Before I was here, when this church family sought to plant Christ Church Central, was it 13 or 14 years ago, some people tried to stop the work with exactly the kind of officialdom that we're talking about here. Oh dear, it doesn't really fit into the plans. The leader of that church plant, that planned church plant, was Tim Davis. He was so committed to the growth of the church and the proclamation of the gospel that at considerable cost to himself, personal cost to himself, I'm not just talking about money here, at considerable personal cost to himself, he led 50 people from here to plant Christchurch Central anyway, despite the opposition. So the church was planted and it grew. But that's not the the big thing that I want to say. The big thing is what happens later. It is the very fact that that happened 13 or 14 years ago, that when we came to want to plant Christchurch Walkley, we were able to do it without opposition because Christchurch Central was outside the structures of the Church of England. And the Church of England now, in, in wanting to stop our plans to plant in Walkley, couldn't do it. That is the sovereign rule of God watching over his people overruling all the red tape of people trying to stop the gospel. So back in Ezra the work on the temple wasn't stopped by the opposition it was actually aided by the opposition. Verse 13 the officials obeyed king Darius's decree and verse 14 the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah a descendant of Iddu. They finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. So there it is. The temple's complete. And the rest of the chapter is full of them celebrating with joy. You'll see it there, summed up in verse 22. For seven days they celebrated with joy the feast of unleavened bread. Why? Here's the point of the chapter. Because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria so that he assisted them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. See, the rebuilding of the temple began with the Lord moving the heart of King Cyrus back in chapter 1. The work was completed with the Lord turning the heart of King Darius in chapter 6. God moves in the hearts of unbelievers to enable his people to do the rebuilding work of his temple. God moves to overcome opposition. He even, as we see here, uses opposition to fulfill his purposes. The church in this land desperately needs reforming it is not what it should be it needs building it needs to become a church which is vibrant and lively and reaching out to the lost and proclaiming the glorious gospel of the lord jesus christ to people who are dying every day it needs that but as we go about that work so many things will conspire against us again and again opposition will come against us The evil one does not want us to build and reform the church. It will be hard. And then we must know the lesson of chapters five and six of Ezra. We keep proclaiming the word of God because that is what makes things change. And as opposition comes, we keep trusting in our God who is over all, who is watching over us. And he is so... In control of all things, that he is able to use even all the things that are thrown against us to rebuild his church for his glory and for our good. Let's pray together. The eye of their God was watching over them we thank you our Lord and God that we know that you are sovereign and ruling over all but forgive us that sometimes when opposition comes and the work seems to stop uh, we find it hard to believe that you will keep bringing about your purposes we thank you for this chapter these two chapters reminding us And showing us how wonderfully in history you have uh, turned around situations that seem so bleak and made them good. We thank you that we see that supremely at the cross of the Lord Jesus. As people try to do their worst against you, you use the worst for the very salvation of men and women. And so we ask you as we look at this nation and the state of the church in this land, we ask you for perseverance that we would keep going proclaiming the truth and then seeing you wonderfully work overruling and bringing about good even as people throw their worst at us and we ask it in jesus name amen